I V M. Hi, welcome to a show about crypto. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about the philosophy of blockchain with uh, Jasprit Bindra, who I want to talk to because I came across your TEDx talk, uh, TEDx Chennai. We're talking about the blockchain, and I read a bunch of articles. And what I'm really fascinated by is this this idea that you have about the philosophy of the blockchain. So I want to jump right into it. You call the blockchain something that's inherently a little more socialist than than the current economy, and I, and I'm very curious to hear why why it is that you think that. Okay, thanks, Ron. You know, I was thrilled when uh, you and your guys came to me and said that you want to talk about the philosophy of blockchain because, very frankly, that is perhaps the most single most fascinating thing about the technology. While everyone seems to be, you know, hot and bothered about the technology and crypto and NFTs and metaverse, which are all which are all great use cases, but it's really the philosophy which is uh, which is just completely fascinating and makes me fall in love with the technology actually. blockchain inherently is a decentralizer so wherever you want to take something which is centralized and decentralize it or distribute it the technology that you use is blockchain so so we we know the case of money money inherently is a centralized property right it's controlled mm-hmm. by a government or a central bank and what is crypto crypto actually is decentralized money and this philosophy actually goes beyond to every asset the same thing can happen for land same thing can happen for identity you know just the fact that there are a bunch of servers and a bunch of people actually authenticating stuff rather than one person so not one central authority but multiple of them basically means it's decentralized now why socialist is <laughs> interesting okay and and because it's a decentralized it it's also called a democratizing technology so rather than a dictatorial one it's far more uh, democratized and and the socialist bit i wasn't the first one to think that way uh, you know naval ravi kanth who's like the the tech philosopher you know mm-hmm. actually said mm-hmm. that blockchain could be a killer app of socialism okay and the the reason is very simple and if you bear with me for 30 seconds you know the world wide web is actually made on a very thin protocol called the tcpip protocol yeah. which is free okay and yes. but it's a it, all it does is just sends routes packets from one place to another you know correct the so it has no value the value is in the apps above that thick apps facebook app right. google app amazon app and so all the value is captured by the apps not by the protocol and so the apps become trillion dollar apps and we get these massive capitalist trillionaires sitting on a free sure. protocol blockchain is the reverse it's a thick protocol and thin apps okay so the protocol itself blockchain the blockchain itself contains so much stuff trust authentic authenticity provenance smart contracts and so the apps that you need to make on it are thin and the protocol right. is again belongs to everyone and so and the value is in the protocol and so the whatever of value belongs to everyone and so rather than belonging to a few very rich capitalists it belongs to the population so, and that's why the socialism part and that's why i call it socialist so i here's where i am on that right in the sense that i get what you're saying i hear you i, I uh, fundamentally on some level there is this sort of romantic idealism that sort of seems to take hold of people when they discuss crypto and they discuss the socialist and the decentralized implications of it and this is for everybody but here's and this is now we've been doing this podcast for 6 months and myself have been following the space for you know about 18 months and what frustrates me 
for want of a better word, is this. Here you are talking about the inherently socialist implications of blockchain. And yet, every single person that I sort of see working on it right now is approaching it from an inherently capitalistic perspective, right? Like today, the conversation is not about the blockchain as much as it is about cryptocurrency. And while we can talk about a cryptocurrency being decentralized and being all of those things, the simple fact is that so far they're being looked as looked at more as tradable assets than as actual tender. I feel like everybody who's into it seems to have very capitalistic ideas of the profits, etc. that they want to make from it. So how does the applications that we're seeing today, do you feel like that conflicts with this larger socialist ideal that you're talking about? So look, at one level, you're right, Rohan. But on the other level, actually, the things happening are are not necessarily the way you're thinking, okay? okay. Or, or all of us are thinking. So at one level, you're right. I mean, I too get frustrated by this, that all of blockchain and everything around blockchain until fairly recently has been just, has just been put in this one world crypto and the trading of crypto and making money out of crypto, doubling your money, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, and, and you know, for many times, and, and crypto, and it's not surprising because crypto is really the, has been so far the only only scale application of blockchain for, for consumers. Okay, enterprise right. blockchain, there's stuff happening. But consumer blockchain, that's the only scale application. There's been nothing mm-hmm. else. And so, you know, I've been fond of saying that blockchain has been a hammer looking around for a nail. Okay. Right. And, but what has happened is now the nails are emerging. More nails are emerging. Okay. And so this whole Web 3.0 stuff, which we can talk about later, or the NFTs, or or distributed finance, DeFi, right. all powered by blockchain, are actually mm-hmm. now the... And so some of that, what you said, just trading crypto is changing. Now, right. Okay. So there where you're right. Now, where, you know, I have a slightly different view is, look, capitalism... You know, so socialism doesn't say that you don't make profit. Sure. The basic thing is that, look, in capitalism, it's very centralized. Few people get rich at the expense of others or, or, or this version of capitalism. So in, when I say socialist, I mean that the wealth gets distributed. Okay, okay. So say in a venture capital world, okay, if there were only a very few people who were kind of had the money and were making more and more money out of it, at least what the whole cryptocurrency thing and now the newer things coming in is that it gives democratic access. Anyone can go do it. You know, you don't need to be like this super rich guy. Okay. Okay. Uh, Millions of people can go do it and are doing it. So it's kind of making that access easier. It's democratizing access to potential wealth. And, And that equalization is where I I come to when I say that it's kind of anti-hardcore capitalist. All right. We're in conversation with Jaspreet Bindra about the philosophy of the blockchain. And I have many, many questions still to ask, but that would be on the other side of this short break. And we're back from our short break where we're in conversation with Jaspreet Bindra about the philosophy of the blockchain. So again, right, to, and, and, I, and I'm sorry if, I, if I'm going to come across as just oh. a bit of a pessimist, not that, it's just that since we're discussing the philosophy of it, this is actually a very rare occasion I get to ask these questions because a lot of times we're discussing this thing from a very financial perspective. So yeah. you mentioned democratization, you mentioned equalization, yeah. Yeah. but, but, but the fact remains that today, if you want to say mine cryptocurrency or if you want to yeah. be a node on the blockchain, yeah. 
there is still a certain barrier to entry in terms of you're looking at expensive either GPUs or computing power. You're looking at things like that. So this, yes, I agree. It's not just in the hands of six venture capitalists anymore. But even this democratization we talk about, aren't we still talking about it within a certain privileged perspective for people who have a certain kind of access all the same? Like my, my only worry is, is it truly democratic? Or is it still that weirdly 1% democratic, right? Is, is where I, is, as, as horrible as that, because I, I feel like democratic is a word that's thrown around a lot by privileged people, right? Yeah. Where, where, when you're really just talking about the same 1% is you. So that's my worry here. Am I 100% wrong in this being like an uber pessimist no, for no reason? No, no, no. You're not 100% wrong. You're not 1% right either. Okay, so uh, it's kind of somewhere in between, okay? So if you talk of the large blockchains, the Bitcoin or Ethereum or some of those, sure, what you say is right, okay, where you need to have a certain level of capital and, you know, computing to buy the computing power, set up those massive specialized servers and that sector to mine, okay. But mining block, mining Bitcoin or mining Ethereum is, is so yesterday. In that sense, I mean, that was the way to do make money at a point of time. Still, if you have that capital, sure, you can make money. But as you know, now it's become more and more difficult. And in fact, more and more money is needed computing power. That's mm-hmm. not the thing. The thing is that there are 3,000 other altcoins beyond right. these two. Okay, or maybe 5,000 others. Okay. And there you don't need to do all, you don't need all this money to get in or even to mine or to buy or to sell, you know, they are very, but I think crypto is not really the only democratizing factor. When I say democratizing, you know, let me give you two two points here. So one is this whole Web 3.0 stuff, which blockchain is powering. And as you know, all the big guys also are kind of moving towards that. Mm -hmm. And what Mm -hmm. is Web 3.0? You know, at its, at its, Basic stuff, it basically means that the web is owned by everyone rather than being owned by just a right. few big tech players. Okay. And so it and and the whole deal about it is rewarding the creators, the people who create the web. So if today you put up video, we are recording this, and suppose we put this up in Facebook or we put this up in Twitter, the people who are going to make money out of it are Facebook and Twitter. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's web yes. two dot, right? They're going to make money out of it. You and I have spent our time, have had interesting conversations, and we believe that it's been worth it. Fine. In web three, the whole change is that the creator gets rewarded. Okay. And so there's a bunch of web three, very interesting web three sites, for example. There's something called Go Social, which is Indian. There's some there's Steam. There are a bunch of bunch of bunch and bunches of them. And so there the creator always gets a larger portion of the money than the platform gets. Okay. And that this new set of platforms is what is making Web3. Whether you take Substack, for example, or you take OnlyFans, for example, okay, and uh, you take Medium, for example, and then these all these new ones for photography, for comedy, for writing, for... And the same thing, and I'm moving to number two here, is actually what is, what is this whole NFT thing. Right. Now, whatever else we think about NFT, the one approach to think about it is people who are creating stuff now have a newer, much more accessible way to make money out of it. And okay. you know the interesting thing about NFT. So, so I create something and you buy it for ten dollars from me, okay? And I get say eight dollars. Tomorrow, when you sell it to someone else, you sell it to your friend. I still get two or three dollars out of that sale. So, as sure. a creator, 
every transaction I get. And so it's actually empowering creators. And that's where the democratization is coming from. The long tail finally has a way other than just advertising, which is controlled by the big guys, to actually monetize itself. So that that sounds great to me, right? Like the idea, especially as a creator, there's nothing more thrilling than that yeah. to me. But here's here's a question just looking at the way Web 2.0 went, right? Like this yeah. is something that started with a ton of promise and a ton of potential. And again, I feel like this conversation has happened in different iterations before, right? Um, there is here is this new technology and it is going to bring us closer together and it's going to make us one and it's going to do that. And then like you said, we saw these sort of this thin protocol yeah. then essentially capitalized on by these thick yeah. apps and they went yeah. away, right? And now today, yes, you're telling me blockchain is more decentralized. It's all of those things. But we are already seeing big players enter. Like today, at the end of the day, you can say a process is democratized. But if like with the greatest of respect to him, a Mark Zuckerberg and a Meta are going to get into the game way before I do, how do we ensure that Three years from now, we're not just all in another one. And this is to completely steal a line from an episode of Succession. How do we make sure we're not just in the Web 3.0 version of Mark Zuckerberg Digital Gulag <laughs> three years from now, as opposed to being in this totally democratic place? It's my question. What you're saying is a real possibility and a real threat. Okay. And I'm absolutely with you. When the web was formed, the 2.0, the one which we know, the World Wide Web, as we call it, okay? I mean, it was started by idealists. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and some of those are alive today. And, you know, it was started and, you know, there were those books, which was about, you know, how the long tail, as I've said it again, how it will make money, how it will be a great democratizer, how it will give equal access to everyone, etc., etc., etc. Where... The problem happened, Rohan, in my view, is that while the web still is inherently democratic, the business models on top of it are inherently capitalistic. So people had to make money out of it, right? You couldn't make money only by selling porn, which was the first real business model of the web. Okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you had to make... Oldest profession (laughs) in the world, right? And always... Yeah, and always succeeds in every medium, right? So only fans now. Okay, so anyways. And so the business model was the problem. And the business model that basically started powering the web and powers the web today is that is basically advertiser pays, right? right? Or, or, or or the selling of data in a yeah. sense. And, the business, and actually, it's very weird. You've seen the 404 error in the web. Yeah. Okay, there's something called a 402 error, which you wouldn't know of. 402 was what? Because the original web was created to enable payments, micropayments, so that every time you consume something, see something, you pay for it. That was never used, 402 error, never used. And, you know, the advertiser pays business model came in. Okay. And the business model basically centralized everything. Okay. Okay. You know, it kind of created this private. The only hope today is that the business model of Web3 is different. Okay. It's actually not advertiser pays. Okay, right. it is actually about whoever consumes space to so very small right. micro payments, but who are, so it's a freemium kind of model. Some things are free, and then for other stuff, you need to pay. So to buy an NFT, you need to pay. Only fans, you need mm-hmm. to whatever. Substack, you need to pay to kind of read stuff, okay, and you know, things like that. So, so that's one hope. However, because the business model is different, and the business model is essentially a micro payment model, and a lot of those micro payments are actually enabled through crypto. Right. Okay, these okay. are micro payments. Okay. Right. But 
But having said that, yes, there is a real fear. You know that, you know, if we use the much abused used word metaverse, rather than mm-hmm. one metaverse, there will be like Facebook's metaverse and there would be like, you know, yeah. uh, someone else's metaverse and someone else's uh, uh, epic It's just metaverse. more world gardens, right? It's just yeah. more world gardens and all over again. Exactly. So a bunch of world gardens, okay, rather than one single one. That fear, absolutely, and it's, it's possible. But hopefully the, you know, the only thing to one is business model. Two, we are also in the middle of a massive tech clash, okay? Customers are rebelling against this control. And hopefully the sum of those two things doesn't take us along the same rabbit hole as it did earlier. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed about that. One thing that I'd like to ask you about is you mentioned that blockchain is like a hammer in search of some nails. Could you tell me what some of those nails could be? In like one of the things that I saw, uh, in fact, under your article yeah. on LinkedIn was this discussion of what if the government started putting all details of how tax money is spent on the blockchain. And to me, that sounds fascinating because I'm like, now you have like untamperable evidence of where your tax money is going. So yeah. like that, what, what are other nails you think? Oh, there are a lot of nails. Okay, so let's put it this way. There are nails in the consumer world, nails in the enterprise world, nails in the government world. Okay, right. the consumer world, we talked about a few. So the whole NFT powering, Web 3.0 powering, yeah. you know, all of that is actually, uh, obviously, crypto, you know, all of those are actually right. uh, the blockchain, uh, the creator economy, etc., etc. Enterprise boring stuff but very effective stuff okay uh, in uh, remittances of money you know it's much faster cheaper uh, things like uh, uh, invoice discounting things like supply chain especially now with supply chains being broken okay if you build supply chains on a blockchain network it's so much faster easier to kind of figure out where this mango came from etc right. or, or blood diamonds or you know now what is called uh, you know what dirty uh, uh, rare earths like cobalt etc right. so that they clean the people so there's a lot of enterprise stuff okay what you specifically refer to is government stuff and i believe that actually the maximum uh, the biggest nail or the maximum uh, uh, power of blockchains can actually be realized by governments though many governments inherently are disincentivized to do it okay sure. because blockchain promotes transparency Okay, blockchain eliminates can eliminate corruption. Okay, it can eliminate a lot of red tape. Okay, and therefore yeah. there's a huge. And all of those sound like political nightmares. Like in the sense, like the, the idealism of the platform when it crashes up against the political reality of because like you get the sense that well, if not government as entities, at least the people who run them like dealing in the dark. As horrible as that sounds. So that's what I said. That that they have a massive disincentive. Okay, to actually actually clean stuff up. But if they want to, you know, the use case you mentioned or the couple more, or two, three more, uh, education, for example, you know, blockchain degrees, okay, and which will make education loans much cheaper because most of the times education loans are fraudulent. And so, you know, the interest rates are very high and yeah. therefore vicious cycle, people who really need the loans don't get them. True. Okay, so, so blockchain degrees, you know, blockchain-based uh, land records, which, you know, people can't hack into and deprive poor farmers, etc., etc. And more importantly, farmers can get loans against it, okay, which they don't get right. today. Okay, but but other interesting cases, you know, uh, tax records that you said, basically it's a trust problem. You know, you have a PAN card, DIN card, MIN card, TIN card, but while that department therefore trusts you because you have the card, the 
the, the, the department issuing card A doesn't trust department issuing card B. And so, sure. you know, kind of putting it on one trustless network, as it's called, identity, uh, you know, centralized identity, including our own Aadhaar and many others are inherently super hackable and inherently yeah. super, and they can be abused by governments. But if, you know, uh, for the sake of argument, your Aadhaar's nodes were the government, the Supreme Court, the Election Commission, <clears throat> something else, something else, something else, you know, it automatically becomes that much more uh, less prone to hacking as well as to sure. I want to end with giving you a quick example. There's a tiny country called Estonia, which you might have heard of, mm-hmm. okay, which actually has put everything on the blockchain. Health okay. record, right. tax records, health records, financial records, identity, voting, everything. Uh, and basically, it takes three minutes to open a company there because everything is kind of available. Oh, wow. All voting is 100% hack-proof and happens from home. Okay, uh, you don't go anywhere. Uh, they have actually put the entire country on a blockchain and uh, and and no hacking happens. They were very powerful neighbors who are looking to hack their systems and it doesn't happen. And 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 it, actually Estonia is now marketing itself as country as a service, you know, rather than wow. as, a software, as a service, etc. So a bunch of possibilities. But I mean, you know, sir, like yeah, ye, ye India, we'll figure out how to hack it. Give us a week. We'll figure it out. <laughs> uh, my my final question is this, and this is the this is the one that keeps me up at night a little bit, uh, mm. and it comes down to this: we have these amazing decentralized protocols. We have mm. all of these amazing these things. We have we have talk of DeFi, we have talk of uh, DAOs, and we have all of those things. But fundamentally, my worry is this: that when things are good, everybody's okay with this. Mm. When things are bad suddenly people more than dealing with it themselves also want to have either a regulator or a central authority who can crack the whip on their behalf. So in a way is as horrible as this sounds is, is Loki from the Avengers. Correct. Were we meant to be ruled? Do we like to be ruled? Does, does is, is, and how does that conflict with, with something as fundamentally democratic and flat as the blockchain? You know, that's like a meta-philosophical question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> philosophical. Okay. I'm sorry. This is the stuff that keeps no, me up at no, night. No, no, no. Look, there is some truth in Loki's statement. Okay. Um, I think the utopian dream of every person on their own, every person having their own personalized currency, forget government currency or cryptocurrency. I mean, most of the idealists are dreaming of a Rohan currency and a Jaspreet currency, etc., etc. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, so the ultimate decentralization, I think with 8, 8 billion plus people is not really a, a credible uh, alternative. Okay. Okay. You know, uh, I actually, funnily, I'm a votary for some regulation in some of these technologies. I agree with it. Okay, then, you know, this it's kind of counter to everything that we've spoken about. But, you know, I want to give you, I want to throw, you know, if I asked you, Ron, that, you know, of the, there was this technology in the last century, which came up in the middle of the century, which mm-hmm. was super powerful, mega powerful, and had its good sides, which could save the earth, and bad side, which could completely destroy the earth. It was invented somewhere around the 1940s. Okay, and the answer is nuclear energy. Okay, you know, 
it's the most amazing source of which can actually theoretically solve yeah, all our true. energy problem. True, you know? true. It's both fission and fusion. Okay, yeah. it can solve our. Uh, on the other hand, you know, with Hiroshima and everything, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the destructive effect of these te- this technology was so crazy, and it was demonstrated at Hiroshima. Okay, that all the governments got together buried their differences, massive post-World War differences, okay, and kind of created a regulatory framework, which at least till, well, this particular 1240 on a Tuesday or whatever has not resulted in another uh, nuclear. So far, so good. Yeah, so far, so good. I believe that in some of these technologies, we are reaching the Hiroshima moment. Right. Okay. And especially in things like the, what is happening with some of the social networks and therefore AI and, you know, some of these. And mm-hmm. I think there will, therefore, will be this coalition coming together to do some kind of a regulation, which I think is necessary because the destructive ability of these technologies are as yeah. much as, you know, and it's democratic <laughs> control of destruction. Okay. This is true. Not, this is true. Not an centralized control, and so it. I and therefore I think it's needed, and therefore uh, to answer your question, I think certain level of rule is necessary, and yes, therefore people prefer to be ruled when such forces are kind of going around. Well, let's just hope that in this case we get to that coalition before the Hiroshima moment and not after the fact. Even though human history has sadly taught us that it will always be after the fact. Absolutely, uh, and I, I think. Uh, yes, I mean, yes, that that is what keeps me awake at night, that, you know, we right. do this proactively rather than reactively, though, as you rightly said, all precedence shows that we do this reactively rather than proactively. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, now you know that if you are awake at night, think about this, give me a call, we just record another episode. <laughs> but on that note, thank you so much, Jasmine. This has been a very illuminating conversation. I think this is one of those conversations where um, anybody who listens to this episode will go back with as many questions as they have answers. And I think that's great because I also think we've reached this place where more than just sort of following it, looking into it, people need to start thinking critically about the blockchain and about crypto because I feel like we've we've kind of lived two years of euphoria. Yeah. And I think the, the time for critical thinking and reasoning is here if it's to make um, the next step forward. So thank you so much for putting us on that path today on this show. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, this has been a show about crypto and we have been in conversation with Jaspeet Bindra about the philosophy of blockchain. And on that note, thank you Jaspeet. It is time to leave the matrix. Lovely. Thank you very much. <laughs>